This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. As you might be able to tell, we're out of the studio and off for another adventure. Folks, good afternoon from the flight deck. Welcome on board flight 42, service to uh, Washington National. Three hours and 57 minutes are en route flying time today once we are airborne. It's going to put us uh, on the ground in D.C. on time at 7.28 local time. As you quite conveniently heard, the pilot just announced we're headed to Washington, D.C., I'm going to do some work at NSF, the National Science Foundation. While I'm there, I thought it would be fun to meet and talk with a few people that are very important to science and biology, but are not necessarily scientists. We're going to be talking with an independent filmmaker for National Geographic and the Discovery Channel. In addition, we get to meet with a science writer for the journal Science. And finally, we'll try to grab a moment with one of the program directors at NSF to learn about a really cool program that is part of the National Science Foundation. So sit back, relax, while we begin our trip by flying to Washington, D.C. Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready for departure. Flight attendants, please be seated. We've arrived at Washington National Airport. We're heading to our first interview. To get to our first guest, we'll be catching the subway up to Silver Spring, where the Discovery Communications headquarters are located. Well, from that loud rumbling you just heard, you probably figured out that the trains arrive. So let's get on board. Next stop, Silver Spring and the Discovery Corporation headquarters. Well, I've been able to take the subway up to Silver Spring, and I'm standing outside of the Discovery Communications building. And this is where, if you don't know it, the programs for the Discovery Channel originate. And I've been able to steal some time away from independent filmmaker Cheryl Zook and her latest project. Cheryl, thank you for joining us here today to talk about your filmmaking. It's a pleasure to be here. Your work is a little different from what I'd say is the typical science and nature film. Your work deals with religious themes. How do you use science in your filmmaking? Well, it's interesting. You know, most of the work that I do is based on, like you said, religious themes, but also cultural issues rather than purely the the science documentaries like I don't do a whole lot of natural history filmmaking I do more cultural and and religious themed work it's not quite the same kind of science-based study like study of biology in certain cases best example that I can give is I did a film about the gospel of Judas when that was released a year or so ago and we actually had a lot of science in that because one of the purposes behind this program was to try to authenticate whether or not we had the real 
the real thing, whether or not this was an ancient document or if it was a forgery. So we brought in a lot of science in that case. We had a radiocarbon dating pioneer from the University of Arizona um, who was helping us. We had ink analysis done on the document. We had epigraphers who are handwriting specialists who worked with us to verify that the handwriting was authentic for that period. That was kind of a a very unusual and exciting project for us because there was so much science involved. That's very interesting and it's something I really wanted to know more about because as we'll talk a little bit more in this program, there are many different kinds of people that bring different parts to the world of science. Not everybody is going to be practicing science. There are those that are going to have to communicate science and use the things that scientists have found for the tools that they need to tell their own stories. So it sounds pretty much like that's what you're doing here. You know, we're not scientists ourselves, so we really rely on people in that field, the different specialties in the areas of science, to help us understand what it is that we're seeing or what it is that we're looking at on TV when we're doing programs of this nature. We have ventured beyond our usual practicing scientists today. Uh, the reason is to put a perspective that science and science communication needs many different types of people. Uh, as a filmmaker, you are one of these kinds of people. How does your role as a storyteller and documentary filmmaker fit within this realm of communication? Well, like you said, our purpose in making films is to tell a story. We're not hard scientists. We're, we're storytellers. We're not specialists in any given area. So we rely on scientists. We rely on historians. We rely on any number of people to give us the factual background of our stories. And it's a very important working relationship. We're able to present ideas in a more understandable way, but we need the specialists to help us understand the details behind the stories that we're presenting. Were you ever going to be a scientist? I can't say that that was my strong suit. I was an English major, so you know I, I dealt more with literature, fine arts, rather than science itself. Were you always going to be a filmmaker? That was also a big surprise to me when I moved to D.C. I didn't have a clear kind of path that, yes, I'm going to be a filmmaker when I grow up. I studied theater. I worked more on the tech side of theater. I, I did lighting. I did stage management. Eventually, film became kind of a natural progression from that, where I wanted to do something that was a bit more accessible to the public. I felt like theater was sometimes more of an elitist kind of thing, and documentary film, I felt, was, was more educational and more accessible to the public. So it was kind of this long journey to, to get to filmmaking itself. Along the way, you must have had some different jobs before you became an independent filmmaker. Sure. I mean, I, I definitely started on the bottom. I was an intern. I did a lot of pushing paper, you know, when I first got into the business and learned. You know, I never studied film. I learned it on the job. And I've been very fortunate in that sense that people gave me a chance to learn as I was working with them. I have to say your name, Cheryl Zook, rhymes with book, <laughs> is a pretty cool name. It actually sounds like you were destined to be a filmmaker. <laughs> well, you know, I have my parents to thank for that. You know, I had very little to do with it. It's a, a good, solid kind of German origin name. So if you weren't a filmmaker, what would you be? That is a fine question. Honestly, when I was in college, I thought I was going to be working in Central America doing literacy work. So it's, uh, it's been a process that's evolved considerably since then. But I think, you know, for me, the, the kind of educational component of filmmaking has always been important to me. 
You mentioned earlier that uh, when you came to Washington, D.C., you didn't plan on getting into filmmaking, but you've stayed here. So what does Washington, D.C. bring to your filmmaking? D.C. is a great place to be, particularly for documentaries. National Geographic Channel is here. Discovery Channel is based here. You know, there are people all over the world who who make documentaries, but this is a really great place in terms of the context you can make here, and it's a great city for, for documentary. But you also do an awful lot of traveling. Uh, lots of these documentaries take you around the world. Can you tell me about some of those locations? I've been very fortunate in where my projects have taken me. For some odd reason, I, I've, I've seemed to have, have focused on the Middle East and um, Central Asia in recent years. I'm a freelance producer, so when I first started at National Geographic, I was on a project about Afghanistan and was fortunate enough to be able to travel there in 2004. It's one of the parts that I love the most about my job is I get to travel to amazing places and, and really meet amazing people. Before I started working in film, I always had the travel bug, and I traveled a lot on my own. And I'm thrilled that I now get paid to, to do the same, to, to go and see amazing places and meet amazing people and be able to tell their stories. Well, you've answered my question. I was going to ask next, do you like to travel? And obviously you do. Travel really rocks my world. It's always a thrill to me when I meet someone who completely changes my mind about something or makes me see a different point of view. And there's, there's nothing like being out in different cultures and having your, your worldview challenged that kind of keeps you motivated. Having a different perspective is really important, not only with what you've been doing, but also in science. It's very common for us to have a differing opinion on what is the correct thing in science. Uh, there are different theories that come along, and it's really important to be able to look and listen to all the perspectives there. Yeah, and I think people get stagnant if you're not challenged by new ideas, and I would see this in the science world as well as in religion or in, in culture. You know, you have to be challenged. You have to think about why is it that we think about certain things the way we do in order to continue growing and challenging ourselves. I think, you know, the best way is to, to be exposed to new opinions and new ideas. So you're a communicator and you also listen. I think that's the key there. You've got to be able to listen as well as talk, right? And I would say I'm better at listening than I am at talking. I enjoy it more. Yes, I have turned the table just a bit for you, putting you behind the mic, and so you have to actually talk. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been really great, and I know that uh, a lot of the students and people will find this interesting. Thanks so much. I've enjoyed being here. Now, earlier when I said we were going to be stealing some time away from Cheryl Zook, we really were stealing some time. She was on a tight editing deadline. She took some time away just to talk with us. Next up, while you're hearing these strange sounds in the background... We're on a really long escalator ride that's taking us out of the Metro Center subway station and up to street level. There we can walk about two blocks to the AAAS building. One thing you soon learn while visiting Washington, D.C. is almost everything is reduced to letters and acronyms. AAAS stands for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. There we can sit down with a science writer for the journal Science. I'm on the 11th floor of the AAAS building, which houses the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I'm here with Elizabeth Panisi, one of the writers for Science Magazine. Thanks for sitting down with us, Liz. Can I call you Liz? Sure. 
Liz, as a science journalist, you're very important to the scientific process. And what we're doing with this trip to Washington, D.C., is talking about communicating science outside of the realm of the scientists themselves. Because not everybody's going to be doing science. But a lot of us are going to be interested in what's being done. What kind of role do you think you fit in that realm? My job is to communicate science to everybody. I work for a magazine that's partly a journal, which means that part of the magazine is devoted to original research written by the scientists, peer-reviewed by their peers. The other half of the magazine is the part I'm involved with. We do a news section, which has important events that have happened about science for scientists, to scientists over the course of the week, and then we write feature stories. And our goal is to communicate science, new research, to the broadest audience possible. Of course, a lot of our readers are scientists themselves, but we also provide material for policymakers, for students, for teachers. Um, my dentist gets it. Were you always going to be a writer, or in that case, were you always going to be a science writer? Um, I think like a lot of people in my generation, I was going to be the new Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to be a marine biologist. I learned very early on that research wasn't my thing. I like to learn a little about a lot of things. I'm not so good at, at just focusing on one topic and getting a more and more detailed look at it. But being a science writer, I get to stay in science. I get to talk to scientists who are really excited about their work because they have just discovered something important enough for me to write about. So I get to experience all the thrills of research without having to do any of the work. Do you get to travel when you're doing this? I travel to meetings. I sometimes travel to labs. So yeah, I do get to travel. I just came back from a meeting in France and am headed out hopefully to Sweden at the end of the summer for another meeting. Now, Science Magazine, we mentioned one part of it is a journal, which means a scientist write an article and it's actually published. And those are probably more standard science kind of in the techie realm. What role do you think your writing for Science Magazine fills in the overall scheme of science as a, as a body of work? I think my role is to sort of help people keep up with fields that they don't really follow normally. So, for example, someone who's a developmental biologist might not be following the scientific literature on evolution, but they might be able to read a story that I've written on evolution to sort of catch up on the latest thinking about speciation, for an example. So that's my job, is to sort of help people keep in touch. When you go out and you're doing an interview, how do you prepare for it? If you're going to do a story, is there, is there some process you go through? It depends on how much time I have before I do the interview. Um, ideally, what I like to do is read the homepage of the person that I'm talking to so I have an idea of what he or she has done recently. If I have a lot of time, I'll pull up some of their scientific publications and take a look at them. Uh, there have been moments, usually not on the scene interviews, but tele for telephone interviews where I barely know what the person is studying and because of the time crunch, I have to call them up and say, tell me what you do. Now, you like to write, and 
one of the things I do with my scientists, I usually take their science away from them and ask them, what would they do if they couldn't be a scientist? In your case, you're a writer, and not just a science writer. You also do fiction. So I have to really take all the writing away from you, and now you have to let me know what would you do if you couldn't write at all. Uh, I think I would be a kayak instructor. I spend almost all my free time canoeing. Any particular kind of canoeing? Because I have learned there's a lot of different kind of canoes out there. I do a whole bunch of different kinds. So I do kayaking, whitewater kayaking. I do um, regular canoeing. I also do something called marathon canoeing, which is racing long distances. I did a 70-mile race twice. I also do Hawaiian outrigger canoe racing. That's fabulous. That's actually rather cool. And then the whitewater canoeing, uh, that looks actually... Bit scary sometimes to me. It can be very scary. I try not to do difficult rivers. For young students out there, or even someone that has a career and they want to shift, they've they've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, what advice would you have for them? Read. I think it's really really important for anybody who wants to be a writer of any type to read as much as they can, particularly in the kind of writing that they want to do. I think that's the first and foremost thing. You know, you can take classes. That's always helpful. I tell uh, a lot of scientists, especially young scientists, will ask me how I got into science writing or what they can do. And what I suggest is at their university, take a journalism course, try and get involved in the student newspaper or the alumni magazine, and write articles about science. Start off with the stuff you know and then move on from there. Is it hard to break in? I mean... You didn't get here all at once. Was the path a little torturous, or was it pretty easy? Uh, I would say it was torturous, but not in the sense of hard. It was just twisty. I started out working at a university in a public relations office, writing for a science magazine put out by the university. I worked for United Press International for a little while, and uh, moved to Washington for a job, and then moved to science 10 years ago. You've been in Washington, D.C. for quite some time. So what's it like to be living in Washington, D.C., where there's so much science and art around virtually free and very plentiful? It's wonderful. I think that uh, something that is very appealing about Washington is the museums are free. The Smithsonian Museums, at least, are free. So if you want to spend your lunch hour looking at art, you can do that. If you want to spend your lunch hour under the elephant of the Natural History Museum, you can do that. And you don't have to feel guilty because you spent $10 for one hour. Well, Liz, I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure to be able to come in and enjoy this beautiful building and come up to the 11th floor and see your, your rather... Well, it's, I'd say spectacular office, but as a true writer, I see papers on the floor and books in the bookshelves. I have to believe you're really a working writer. Yeah, you see the dictionary on my desk, don't you? That's even better. You're not stuck to the uh, online dictionaries. You do a real paper dictionary. Yes, I'm very old-fashioned. It was great to be able to catch up with Liz Panisi and see what it's like to be a science writer. Right now, I'm back in the subway, and I'm waiting for the train to arrive. I have to say, getting around in Washington, D.C. with the subway is a breeze. It makes it a great place to visit and learn about our history, science, and art. Speaking of history, science, and art, 
I want to mention an architectural and engineering detail that is used to construct the subways themselves. In the tunnels, if you look up, you'll see these arched concrete ceilings, and they have a pattern of recessed panels that make a very nice design. But this is more than just a nice design. This is used to lighten the load of the ceiling, makes them less heavy, without losing strength. These are called coffered ceilings, and they were developed by the early Greeks and Romans. Right now, it's time for us to head off to our final interview at NSF. I've been able to catch up with Nancy Pelias. She's actually a program officer at NSF. And earlier I mentioned that a lot of the places in Washington were reduced to letters or acronyms. And NSF stands for the National Science Foundation. So we're going to talk with Nancy for a little bit and see what's going on at NSF. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm glad you're visiting us, and you're right about the acronym. So one of the things I can do is tell you about the TLA antidote. You know what the TLA is? No, I don't. Tell me about it. Three-letter acronyms. <laughs> so much at the National Science Foundation is represented by acronyms that only the people who work here really understand. And so with the TLA antidote, we teach people to go to the web page and look up these acronyms. That's very cool. Actually, it's nice to know that they've come to the grips with the fact that everything has been reduced to a bunch of letters. <laughs> One of the things that you're very interested in is another acronym. It's got four letters. <laughs> in this case, it's called NSDL, which is the National Science Digital Library. Can you tell us about it? Oh, that's a very cool collection of things that makes it possible for anybody to learn about recent science discoveries. Uh, there are videos and images and activities you can do, all available to the public on the World Wide Web. Now, how much money does NSF spend on these tools? Because these are really the cool things that should get kids interested in science. Okay, this, this year we're going to spend probably about $6 million dollars. And you might wonder, well, where do we get $6 million to spend on the National Science Digital Library? Well, that's your money. It's tax dollars that go to the federal government. And Congress then decides to give that money to us to invest in this library to make this material accessible to anybody. So what are we getting with all this money, the $6 million? It sounds like a lot of money to me. Well, this year there were 37 different groups who had plans for how to make science material available to the public, uh, and they requested $25 million worth of funds to invest in the tools that they're developing. So what we do is we bring in panelists, and you're one of those panelists. Thank you so much for coming and reading their proposals. These uh, panelists then choose which of all these proposals is going to get money in order to make this material available to other people to use. Have you liked Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is a wonderful place to live. I recommend everybody should try to plan a visit here at some point. There are tremendous museums, and they're all free, and you can actually go right up to the Capitol building and the Washington Monument. Uh, there are bike paths around here, so I, I went with some colleagues the other day and rode my bike to Mount Vernon, which is the home that Washington built. And he actually was a scientist himself. He was quite a farmer, and he planted lots of fruit trees, cherry trees and peach trees. And so it makes you proud to see that here in the United States we have a long tradition of scientific investigation that goes back to our first president, George Washington. 
That's really quite cool. Let me ask you, NSDL, let's talk a little bit more about that. One of the things I want to know is, how do you get there? Oh, on the web, it's just nsdl.org. That's easy. With this collection of images and videos and content, I bet you have a few popular ones or something that you really, really, really like. Well, my favorite collection is the Harvard-Smithsonian Digital Video Library. Can you tell us about it? Uh, it's a collection of videos about how the planets work or photosynthesis or all sorts of things that people can learn. And there are also video clips of experts talking about interesting things to learn. And to find that collection, uh, there's a very long acronym. So if you think of the name Harvard Smithsonian, Harvard is the university. Smithsonian is a museum here in Washington, D.C., Video Digital Library. Okay, the acronym is hsvdl.org. Go to that website, then you have all sorts of video clips about different topics in science that you can look at and learn from. Can teachers get involved with the NSDL, uh, even if they have to be in the classroom? Is there something they can do to get involved? Yeah, anybody can join the NSDL right now, and they have a newsletter. If you give them your email, they'll send you information. If you have created your own materials, maybe taken photos, here's one of my favorite projects is find your favorite place out in nature. Go out there once a month with a camera. Make sure the camera is always pointing in the same direction. Record the date and take photograph of the same place over time. The seasons go by and we hardly notice how things change as time passes. But if you take a photograph every month and then put those all together, you can see how things change in the 12 months. Now, if you would have a collection like that, you can submit it to the National Science Digital Library so that other people can enjoy seeing how seasons change. And that gives you the chance to maybe compare what's going on in California to how it happens in Washington, D.C. Or, or someplace else in the world. In Arizona, where you might not see as much of a change, versus D.C., where you're going to see an awful lot of change because they have truly four seasons. Well, that's really a marvelous idea. I like it. I like it a lot. I think I'll do it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Now, if you weren't a scientist, I always like to ask this because some of the times I find more about my scientists this way than some of the other questions we ask or any of the questions I ask. If I took that away from you, you couldn't be a scientist or biologist, what would you be? Probably an artist. <laughs> what kind of art? I would probably be doing video or something like that, some kind of high tech, maybe video games or something like that. Do you see some new technologies coming on the horizon that you think that teachers and students are going to be wanting to check out? I think one of the most interesting things is called tagging. And so if you find something in the NSDL these days, you can actually bookmark it with a tag that you can then access from school or from home or a public library, wherever you happen to be. So one of these tools is called Delicious. And that's something, if you Google Delicious, you'll find the website that teaches you how to tag your favorite items that you might find in the National Science Digital Library or wherever else you're exploring on the web. You can also find communities of people who like the same kinds of things you like on Delicious. And then if you like, for example, the Harvard-Smithsonian Digital Video Library, then you can look at people who like stuff like that and see what they're looking at, and that helps you find the types of things that might interest you. How about those that, they like science, but maybe they don't want to be in the lab, but they want to be involved. What kind of careers are there for those people? Most of the science communicators have 
uh, a lot of training in science. As a matter of fact, my niece got a chemistry degree and then went on and she completed her doctorate. And everybody expected her to be working in a lab for the rest of her life. Uh, well, she just got a job at Nature Magazine to be writing about current discoveries that might be of interest to readers of Nature Magazine. And as part of her training, they sent her to London to have a year abroad to see what kinds of discoveries are being made by European scientists. Yeah, it seems like travel is a common theme in the sciences. It's not unusual for scientists, of course, to go out in the field, travel, as we've heard in previous shows. Andrew Smith has gone to the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, we have others that send their experiments up on the space shuttle. I bet you have some trips planned as well. Yeah, so I'll be going in summer of 2009 to Kyoto, Japan. And my task there is to look at the International Union of Physiological Sciences and talk to the international physiologists about how they're investigating and educating for physiology in other countries. I want to thank you again, Nancy Pelias. You've been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. It's a busy place, but you were able to sit down with us. And I hope we get to talk to you again, maybe after your trip, or I hope even sooner. <laughs> thank you very much. That about does it for this show. As you can tell, you don't need to be a scientist to be involved in science. We've been able to sit down with an independent filmmaker. We were able to learn what it's like to be a science writer. And we had a chance to catch up with a program director at NSF, who's part of a really cool program called NSDL, the National Science Digital Library. And all three of them were using science in one way or another, but they weren't all scientists. And then, while walking back to the subway, what did I come across? Well, you hear it in the background. It's a free live music concert being held in the garden off the mall. So I'm sitting down on the grass, listening to some great music. Jazz music. What are we talking about? Music that was brought about through experimentation. These are the kinds of things we do in everyday life. We are scientists, whether we know it or not. We are usually experimenting, or we're using the scientific method in one way or another. We're making decisions, and that's the important thing. Right now... I think I'm going to lie back on the soft green grass and listen to some of the music. And the next time I catch up with you, we'll be back on the campus of Arizona State University where the show usually originates. If you have questions about the show or biology in general, you can use our companion website, which is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.